Annie. I'm Joel. And this is Sunday School Cinema. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> so, <laughs> this week we watched The Virgin Spring, directed by Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid. No, nope. Ingmar, Ingmar. There you go. <laughs> It's confusing to have two of them with such similar names. A little bit. Anyway, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Joel, um, when did you last watch Virgin Spring? I mean, probably when we did it for, for the group. Like, I've watched it a handful of times because Jared owned it mm-hmm. when we were living together. And, like, I, I, I've probably watched it. This was probably my fourth or fifth time watching it, but it's it's definitely been several years. Yeah, I think it was for sure my third or fourth time watching it, but it's not my favorite Bergman. no. But it's a good one. I mean, I like this yeah. one a lot. No, but it's it, good. Yeah, it's not my favorite either. But Just like while I was watching it, I found myself thinking about other Bergman movies. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. but on the upside, we have fucking three of them. I was going to say, yeah, we've got three. Yeah. So it's fine. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, to anyone who may not have watched The Virgin Spring, I guess we can try to do a vague plot overview. We're so bad at this. It's a pretty simple plot. It is so, a pretty simple plot. I mean, it, it's it's literally based on like a medieval ballad. Right. So it's, you know, you could tell the plot in the time it takes to sing a song. I mean, there are some medieval ballads were quite long, I think. Well, that's true. <laughs> what else did they have to do? I was reading like just a, you know, basic Wikipedia version of research. And I guess there's there's multiple ballads, you know, about this character. But in at least some versions, apparently the... The character of, uh, what's his name? Max von Sydow's character. He has seven daughters, all of whom Holy shit. get raped and murdered. Uh, so I think they, they simplified it a bit for the movie's purposes. But uh, Okay. <laughs> well, um, so yeah. So it is about a husband and wife and their household living in medieval times, I guess olden times of some sort. I don't know. The 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 IMDb description is an innocent yet pampered young virgin and her family's pregnant and jealous servant set out to deliver candles to church, but only one returns from the events that transpire in the woods along the way. So yes, the the daughter, the virginal blonde, um <laughs> heads off with the uh, with the pregnant knocked up brunette. Pregnant. Pregnant and knocked yeah, up. Yeah, both of those things. <laughs> and the daughter ends up being uh raped and murdered by well, I mean, there are three brothers, but one of them is a child. Two brothers mm-hmm. raping and the murdering. And uh, then that night, the murderers show up at her house, not knowing that it's that it's her place, and uh, ask the father for permission to spend the night, uh, which he grants them, and then figures out that they are the ones who that they killed his daughter. Um, and yeah, because they try to sell him they for try clothing. To sell, that they, they try to sell yeah. their beautiful golden shift or whatever. And then he murders them, including the child. And then they go out to find the body and he feels bad, very guilty, and um, says he's going to build a church. And then there's like a whole like religious tableau of them all sitting there holding her body. That's like the... <laughs> well, and uh, uh, the, the titular spring right. comes up from underneath where her body was. Yes. But yeah, this is... The, I mean, guilt is really the one of the sort of main themes in the movie. I think every character in this movie is dealing with guilt in some way. And it was written by a woman. It was. I was going to bring that up because apparently Bergman had done The Seventh Seal before this, which was also set in medieval period. Mm -hmm. And apparently he got some some flack for historical inaccuracies in that movie. (laughs) And it really bothered him. 
and the woman that he hired to write the screenplay because he found it wasn't like he didn't find the screenplay. He he was familiar with this ballad and wanted to adapt it. Right. So he, he found this woman to write the screenplay because she had apparently recently written a historical novel set in the medieval period that was had been really praised for its historical accuracy. So he <laughs> hired her specifically to try to counteract his own blind spots in that regard. Which is interesting, I thought. Yeah, that's cool. I definitely, I mean, one of the things I do when, I, when I'm when i tracking my movies and stuff for the years, I track whether the director and writers are male or female. And it is more common to find writers who are female than directors. Mm-hmm. But also, the further back you get, the less common it is. <laughs> Not impossible by any means, but... Like, yeah. it, it's still it's still pretty rare, I have found, to find a ton of female writers from the 60s. In this case, 1960. Yeah, there, there was definitely a period in Hollywood and beyond where it was uh, relatively common for yeah. for women to be writing high profile. Because, you know, that was back in the it was back in the day when the, the credit for movies all went to the producers. Right. So, like, it didn't it didn't really make that much difference who wrote the screenplay. Like, that wasn't really considered that important. <laughs> So, you know, and but then, you know, once the 60s and 70s and the auteur theory of the director is the driving force and all that, then it started. I think it started being, you know, the the, the big important directors were mostly writing their own stuff. And it was right. As far as as with many things, once it became seen as an important job, women could no longer right. do it. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I don't I don't know if it was if that was reflected in the Swedish film industry as much as it was in Hollywood. But that was definitely kind of how it was in Hollywood. I did notice just looking through the cast, the credits of the cast and stuff like, for example, uh, the woman who played Ingeri, the servant mm-hmm. girl, uh, her name is Gunnar Lindblom, mm-hmm. apparently. Who uh, <laughs> It was actually kind of funny. I pulled up her filmography because I was thinking like. I didn't really think she looked familiar other than from this movie, but I've actually seen her in several things because she did a bunch of stuff with Bergman. Bergman really liked to work with people over and over again. He had kind of his staple of actors. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But so she was in, she was in the seventh seal. She was in wild strawberries. She was in scenes from a marriage. She was in winter light. She was in the silence. She was in uh, a couple others. So, and apparently she was also in the original girl with a dragon tattoo movie, although I certainly don't remember who she was in that, but she also has six directing credits. Oh, cool. Going, you know, going back to the 70s. And, but I don't know if that would have been like super unusual, if that would, was a was a weird thing or maybe the, the barriers were a little lower in Sweden than they were here. I don't know. Yeah. Well, OK, this is our first Bergman that we are doing in this project, even though there will be more to come. Perhaps it would be a good time to talk about our feelings on Bergman before diving more into this specific movie. Yeah, I mean... I don't know about for you, but for me, Bergman was kind of my uh, my entry point into the like the 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 classic foreign cinema world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think The Seventh Seal was probably the first one I watched, and like in spite of Bergman's reputation for with a lot of people in the U.S. as being sort of like you know good but dull. <laughs> uh, the Seventh Seal is a fucking entertaining as hell movie. It definitely is. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. It's got like some good action in it. It's mm-hmm. got like it, that that movie has everything, and that that really kind of that was a it was a big it was it was kind of an eye opening thing for me. So and you know so so when <laughs> I think I've mentioned before that there was a period when before I moved out of my parents' house, me and and Jared, our brother, were both still living there, and this was back when you got discs in the mail from Netflix. Yes. And he, he had it set up. He still does, but that's another story. <laughs> he had it set up so that he could have three at a time. 
And so we had a we had a disc every night and we watched a movie together every night because we were working a night shift that started at like 3 a.m. So after mom and dad went to bed, we watched a movie together every night before we went to work for years. So this is like a 40 year <laughs> so, <laughs> we, in that period because he was picking all the movies and he is much more of a like granular nerd than either of us are even. Yeah. He was picking all this stuff that I would never have picked on my own. A lot of it stuff that. I would happily have never seen and, you know, regret the fact that I have. But uh, a lot of it's stuff like this that I'm really glad that I ended up finding because of him. So we had as as part of his insane, complicated system of picking which movies he was getting. Part of it was that we had four directors who we were working our way through all of their stuff. And Bergman was one of them because we both really loved the first couple of his that we got. So we, we watched a bunch of his and then you got into him yes. as well. So we, yeah, we started doing it as a, a thing for all three of us. Yeah. The first Burger movie that I ever saw was also from Jared and it was Sawdust and Tinsel. Really? That was the first one and you watched? I, because it was the first one he got. He was just like, he was at my house and he was like, hey, I got this movie. You want to watch it? And like, like Joel is not wrong. Jared is and always has been. Hi, Jared. I don't know if he listens he, he to us. He doesn't listen to us. He doesn't listen to, doesn't listen to, doesn't listen to oh, podcasts. Please say whatever the fuck we want then. Uh, no. <laughs> Jared was and always has been like an incredibly granular level of nerd. I mean, I keep lists, but. Jared's been keeping them more and longer than me. And so it's definitely true that for me as well, though less me than Joel, because I wasn't watching a movie with him every night, but it's definitely true that he would be like, like, I think both Joel and I, particularly by the time we were getting into, like by the time I was like in my early twenties and stuff, were interested in like having a more complete understanding of like cinema. Like this was a thing that we had all three sort of like embraced. And Jared was largely the one who did the fucking work to like <laughs> to figure out. Like it's easier now. I mean the internet was around of course, but like it's just I don't know, there's just more access to lists and things, or maybe I just didn't know how to look for them. But so it was not uncommon for Jared to be like I have this movie that I got and I would be like, I don't know what that is. And he would be like, well, this is a really important director from such and such. Right. So, <laughs> so I would this, be like, okay. <laughs> here, here's a good, here's a good, a good example of the way Jared approached these things. Those uh, uh, people listening might recall or be familiar with the Leonard Malton movie guides. Yes. Uh, there, there were books that were published annually. They were like probably about 2000 pages and they had little like one paragraph reviews organized alphabetically of basically every movie that has ever existed. Jared read one of those cover to cover. Sure did. And, and marked, put markings next to each entry for different things, including all the ones that he thought looked interesting. And, you know, he used that as a, for years, he used that as a, a guidepost for finding stuff to watch. <laughs> this is, so for, yeah. and so, yeah, so he would have these complicated systems that neither of us understood, I think, a lot of the time. But it was not uncommon for him to show up at my house and be like, this movie is by a very important filmmaker. And I would be like, OK, uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll watch it. And so that's what happened. He was at my house. It was when we were living in Morganstern, which was the name of the house, not a place. And so he brought Sadis and Tinsel. And I fucking hated it. Yeah, that's not a great entry point, I would say. I hated it so much. It was so goddamn bleak. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I don't know how I would feel about it now. I think my my capacity around that sort of thing has both grown and shrunk in different ways. But like, I did not like it at all. And I was just like, why did we watch this? And the other thing about Jared is that he almost never hates anything. Or at least he won't admit or it. Or at least he, he won't admit it. Like, 
So like, so like, we'll watch the thing. We'll be like, the fuck. And he'll be like, I mean, it was fine. It was not. <laughs> anyway, Sawdust and Tinsel was the first Berg movie I watched. But then at some point, I liked. For the record, I liked Sawdust and Tinsel when I watched it. Um, but I had already seen some of his other stuff. Like I already had that. Right, which is part of why so. I wonder if I should watch it again because I feel like I have a much better sense of Bergman as a filmmaker now than I did then. And yeah. at the time, it is. It's a weird entry point. And so I think probably the next. I mean, it was probably Seven Seal was probably the next one I saw. Although I did also, I think I did also see Smiles of a Summer Night. We were doing them chronologically for a while. Well, that's how he was going through them. Yeah, but I think by the time you joined in, we had already done a couple. Okay. But I think I have seen that one. You might have, because I think he owned that one. Mm. So you may have watched it at some point. But I think Seven Seal was was probably the first first one. and And I did really like Seven Seal... I do like Wild Strawberries, although not as much as Jared does. And then Through a Glass Darkly. By the time we got to Through a Glass Darkly, I was pretty obsessed. <laughs> yeah. There, like, look, there, there is no doubt. Like, Bergman, like, I look at it and I'm like, the reason that people make fun of Bergman is, like, very clear to me. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's really apparent. His movies are, like, entirely about these, about, like, exclusively white people having very big feelings and making really long monologues and close up. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it's it's th- that combined with the fact that like by the time like the 70s and 80s came around and I think it was and it was kind of more fashionable for foreign films to be shown over here and stuff and people had more access to it, he had gotten a lot more abstract. Yes. His stuff got a lot weirder going into the 70s uh and frankly most I still haven't seen most of his really later stuff, but most of what I've seen of his like mid career going into later career stuff has not worked for me at all. I've not been a fan of it. I have not liked it as much. But I mean, his his earlier stuff really was a lot more accessible just in terms of, you know, having like a coherent plot, which was not always the case with his, <laughs> some of his more famous later work. And when I think about Bergman and sort of that perspective on him, what I generally think about is that like this is like Malick. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like Malik in that the fact that it works is like a little bit the miracle and is like evidence of how fucking good he is. And right. when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. And like, it is always like a quarter fucking inch from parody. And, yeah. <laughs> like, and then like a lot of the time it's not and and when it works it's so fucking good but like if you're just trying to like explain tree of life or seven seal or mm-hmm. through glass darkly to someone it sounds fucking pretentious and awful as hell right i mean if you're trying to explain the seven seal it's like okay it's about it's about this knight returning from the crusades and he comes home to find that the plague is ravaging his home country and all this. Like, it sounds okay. It's like, okay, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. Then you're like, yeah. And then death shows up and they play chess. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about? So much chess. Uh, (laughs) No, it is. And, and I and I think of it in the same way. And the other thing that I think is worth, I think there's a lot of interesting ties between Malik and and uh, Bergman, even though their visual styles are pretty different. But what I became fascinated by with Bergman, and I feel like something's going to strike me out of the sky for saying these two names in the same sentence. But what I became fascinated by with Bergman was the same thing 
that fascinated me about Shyamalan when I was 14. <laughs> um, I would like to emphasize the 14. I have, do, I have no regrets for liking Shyamalan yeah. movies, but the like level of impact they had on me was definitely due somewhat to my age, which is that they both, both of those directors and certainly Bergman overall more skillfully were seemed to, for the first part of their career, particularly be really deeply wrestling with specifically questions about God and mm -hmm. questions about faith and questions about what that looked like in the real world and like the impact and the uh, conflict between like what they had seen and what this you know, what these faiths claimed to be. And so, again, I think this is one of those things where we're watching these movies. And as you get more into Ber I mean, the whole uh, we I think we only watched Winter Light out of the three, whatever that unofficial trilogy is called for this. But the silence, trilogy, the silence trilogy, or the silence of God trilogy. Right. Uh, and like those those movies were like they were hitting us at exactly the right time. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I think both because of our age and they're, I think, well suited for that. And also perhaps because of where we were at. Wait, did we not watch Winter Light for this? No, we did. That's what I'm saying. I think we only watched Winter Light for. Oh, well, this was trilogy. one of this was one of that trilogy, wasn't it? No, the trilogy was Through Glass Darkly, Winter Light and The Silence. Oh, OK. Yeah. No, I think you're right. OK. I, you're right. I was thinking because, I mean, this has a lot of that same thing oh, like, explicitly in it. But you're right. I think I don't think that this one is. Uh, yeah. Right. This has a lot of that, that theme explicitly in it, for sure. It is also, yeah, it's an earlier film. Like, those movies are, are he's clearly figured out more of his craft. <laughs> yeah. So, so I do think that, like, when we talked about watching movies for group, when we talked about putting this group together, for sure, Bergman films were, like, top of the list because they had had such an impact on, like, I, I can't speak for you, but I think for me, they were one of those things that, like, gave me a voice like gave me words sometimes for ways that I felt but wasn't allowed to talk about. And Bergman, who is the son of a, I can't remember what denomination minister. I mean, Lutheran, probably. Yeah, but. probably. Um, who's the son of a minister and who I think had a not great relationship with his father. <laughs> like, yeah. essentially, he is a fucking ex-Christian who is struggling to figure out what he thinks of the world and struggling with, I would, I would say probably his own anger at what he's seen and, and all of those things. And that is to this day, one of my favorite things that a filmmaker can do. Is uh, <laughs> like, And so, but particularly, you know, when I was 21 or whatever, and was first watching these, the, this was like, it was a big deal. And, and I do have a fondness for directors overall who like work with stables of actors and are like, Mm -hmm. I just I like it when they're just like reinvestigating the same themes from different lights. That's like a particular yeah, thing I, that I love. I mean, Bergman really had because he uh, apparently this was the first movie that he made with Sven Nyqvist, who became like his go to cinematographer for, I think, the rest of his career. Mm. So the, and, you know, he's a, he's another another legend in the, the industry. But I didn't realize that this was his there. I, I thought they went back further than that. But I just found that out today. But, yeah, he definitely liked to have his. He had his own little, you know, his, like his own little theater troupe almost yeah. of people who would just come out to do everything for him. And, and I can only imagine that working for Bergman must have required a certain set of skills. Like, oh, no. hi, yeah, we're going to sure. have the camera fucking on your face and nothing else for three and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure he was he was clearly very good at finding people who 
were able to work with him because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people weren't. They're pretty like they're attractive people, they're actors, whatever. But he's really good at finding people whose faces are just mm-hmm. so expressive, but not like but like in micro ways so that he can yeah. do that. I don't know. The point is, I still really like Bergman, um, and I do still plan to watch uh, more of his later stuff, even if I'm with Joel and some of the later stuff didn't appeal to me as much. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see what his stuff was like by the actual end of his career, because I really don't have much idea. But Yeah, he's one of those directors that I would theoretically, like, I would theoretically like to do a project in which I watched all of the Bergman. Uh, yeah. But there's just, there's a lot. and There's a lot. There's yeah. A lot. So. He has, according to, to Letterboxd, he has 71 directing credits. Yeah. Uh, although I'm sure some of that stuff is probably... I th- he did a lot of stuff for, like, Swedish television and stuff. Right. Well, yeah, because he's a he's a nationally... Because he was paid by the, the country, right? Like, isn't Sweden like... Yeah, I mean, most of Europe supports their artists a lot better than we do. But, right. yeah, I think he was kind of like a national treasure level that got government funding for a lot of his projects, particularly later. Right. So, I mean, you know, whatever. It is not like a like a shocking or complicated hill to die on that Bergman was an incredibly talented filmmaker. But I mean, I do think I do think that what Joel's saying is worth noting that a lot of the a lot of his films, particularly from, you know, Seventh Seal and Through Glass Darkly is maybe a little bit more abstract. But I think a lot of his films really do have are a lot less opaque than people would like associate or like less of a, a chore to watch. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. That said, The Virgin Spring is a tough watch, but not because of the filmmaking. It's just a brutal fucking yeah. story. <laughs> like, uh, this is, uh, I mean, American audiences are probably more familiar with the basic arc of this story from The Last House on the Left, which was basically a remake of it. Although I haven't, I haven't seen The Last House on the Left, but this is kind of the the prototypical rape revenge story. Yes, this is, yeah, this was really kind of the original. It's funny to think of, of this movie being made into like a schlocky 70s horror. Well, that's, yeah, it, <laughs> it is weird to think that Bergman was, because it's not, you know, it wasn't just that one. There was a whole like sort of exploitation subgenre of these for a while and they still pop up every once in a yeah. while. So it's weird to think that Bergman was the guy <laughs> who started it. Right, but, because that is really not his, yeah. <laughs> his vibe. So I had not, I had also probably not seen it in ten years. It, it had been a while, and there was definitely stuff I didn't remember when I was watching it. So I was a little unclear on where the the uh, knocked up maid. Had, they said they took her in. Is that or did they already yeah. kept her? I think it was that they let her stay after she got pregnant. I think she was already okay. already living and working in the household. That was what I gathered, but it was a little bit unclear. But. She's, she, you know, I, I don't know what her situation had been like before she got pregnant, but since then she is clearly being regularly mistreated in this uh, household, at least by the... Yes. Uh, not by everyone, it seems, but certainly by the mother. By the mother, and I think also, like, Max von Sydow, whose name is Tor or Torre, I don't know how to pronounce the thing. I don't think it is ever actually pronounced out loud in the movie, so... So, yeah, so the the father is like this... You know, deeply religious man, and as is the and the mother. And the begin the first time we see them, they're praying in front of an icon, and she like right. I, I think it's it's worth discussing that literally the opening of this movie, we open with the servant girl praying to Odin for help. That is the first scene of the movie is her kind of getting the household up and running for the for the morning before everyone else is up and praying to Odin for help. And then it cuts from there to the the mother and father of the family praying to an icon of a crucifix. And I mean, praying to Odin for vengeance is... Like, <laughs> well, it's not, 
it's not super clear at the time what she's praying for. She just prays for help, but right. But I think that as the movie progresses, yeah, no, she by the the end of the movie, she says basically that she prayed for exactly what happened. <laughs> so yeah, so she she prays, gets the house ready. There's like, and there is, I mean. That's interesting about him finding someone who knew more about the time or whatever, because, like, I, I do think that, like, the layout of the house, the specifics. Um, yeah, there's some things really, that interesting. really interesting. Yeah, the things, the, the smoke hole and the, the, the pole that they use to open the smoke hole is, like, a really interesting detail that I feel like I've never seen before. Yeah, same. It, it reminded yeah. me of how I felt um, frequently watching uh, The Witch. Which mm-hmm. another movie in which someone was very obsessive about trying right to similar you know, level of period detail. Yeah, this one also had the thing where she brought the milk in in the morning and then poured it through pine branches. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the story with that is, but it's interesting. I don't know if that was like a ritual thing or if that was like a uh, some sort of like a filter or what the deal was, but it was interesting. It was, and, and there's a lot of things like that of just like small that they don't they don't bother explaining. Like it's not. Yeah, no, it's just it's just the operation of the household right. going on in the background mostly. Yeah. So she prays for that. Um, it sounds like she was at a party with the daughter the night before. So the daughter does still hang out with her, and seems to care for her. Although they definitely have like a like the daughter is also very much aware of her place in the household, I suppose. Right. Yeah. She's nice to her in a condescending kind of way. Right. And she, how old is she? Does we know? She looks young. Like, the daughter? Yeah, like young teenager. She's. I think it said she was 15. Okay. She's very beautiful, blonde, sweet face, whatever. And very spoiled. And very spoiled. She's She's the only surviving child of this family. We're not sure how many they've lost, but the mother at one point says that she's the only child she has left. And, you know, and, and again about the, the, the opening scene, the mother um, is not only... <clears throat> Like, they're not just praying to an icon, but she she burns her wrists. Right. She's doing this penance. With uh, hot wax. And her husband kind of tries to stop her. And she's like, no. She, as the movie progresses, I think it becomes clear. She feels that that their household is somehow, like, only surviving because of her... Like right. Penance and prayers. And, yeah, it, it becomes clear that this kind of thing is not like she does this all the time. There's a later scene where she says something about having bad dreams. And he's like, you really shouldn't do such harsh penance before you go to bed. Because right. it's so he's very like he is very religious. He's very devout, but he's not like he's more he's more merciful than she is, I think. But she ha- she has a weak spot for the kid. Like she can't right. she can't bring. And he to does, too. Right. But it, it manifests a little differently. Yeah. Which I think is actually part of the. One of the really interesting things about this, so initially the daughter is supposed to get up and go to church. I was, how long does it take? (laughs) Is she riding an entire day every few days? Like, what? Anyway. I don't think it was supposed to be an entire day because, like, clearly they had expected her to be home by the time. But the the deal was that she was supposed to have been up early enough to get there in time for the service. Right. He was he was annoyed that she wasn't up by sunrise. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but she had been out at a party the night before with Ingeri. Uh, I'm not sure where they were partying in the mountains with the sheep, but Yeah, they said it was a dance. There must be other houses nearby, but Yeah, I mean the yeah. village is apparently reachable. I don't know. Anyway, so she she gets up late. The mother kind of, like the mother is initially like she's sick and the father's like she doesn't seem sick. <laughs> Like, and the and Ingri is like, yeah, she's gonna be sick until she doesn't have to go to church. Like, mm-hmm. but you know they don't like it when she when uh, 
when Angry talks shit about uh, Karen, 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 yeah. So the mom goes to wake Karen up and is like, okay, like your father's upset. You have to get up. You have to go to church. And she has this whole thing where she's like, I will go to church if I can wear this, like her special outfit, essentially. Like, the Sunday best, the basically. Sunday best, yeah. And the mom's like, it's, you know, it's the middle of the week. And she's like, I'm only getting out of bed if you do this, whatever. And the mom can't resist her and like chastises herself out loud periodically for not being able to do that, but gets her this, this shift that is a Apparently yellow, although it doesn't look yellow. I don't. Yeah, think movie's black and white, so it makes it a little tough to. Yeah, but the color, yeah. I don't know. I I picture it more as blue, but maybe it's yellow. Anyway, it has this whole speech about how fifteen maidens worked on this, <laughs> worked on this uh-huh. dress. Uh, but the girl is clearly just, you know, she she loves getting dressed up, looking pretty, wearing the pretty shoes. Mom says she can't wear the necklace. That has to wait till Sunday. Um, she's going to leave her hair down. She's going to look beautiful, carrying the candles to the church. And the father comes in, and this is the first time we've seen them interact, and he was so irritated earlier with his wife that I like I had kind of forgotten about a lot of this. Um, and I was like, oh, man, is he going to be a jerk? But he's not. He can't resist her. No. He's like, why? You know, why? Are he's you a fucking teddy bear. With he's you. a teddy bear. He absolutely <laughs> is. She's like, he's like, what are you going to? You're going to be late. You're going to, you know, what am I going to do with such a girl? And and she's like, it's OK. I'll go to the church and I'll tell them that that father was sick and mother was sick and uh-huh. the horse was sick and there's nothing I can do. I got here late. No one woke me. And he just starts laughing and like spinning her around. And, you know, making jokes about taking her to the mountains and saying he won't come back till they punish her for seven years or whatever. And, like, they're both the picture of joy. And the mom is sort of standing in the background looking complicated. And so they, they get her ready. They're going to send her off. They put her on the horse. And then, and he says the Ingrid is going to go with her. I was, like, a little unclear about... No, no, she asked for that. Oh, she asked for Ingrid. Yeah, Karen okay. asked him if, if Ingrid could go with them because she never gets to get away from the farm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Also, Ingrid put a frog in bread earlier. Right. We do have that. Yeah, that's right. She Ingrid was sent off to make lunch for Karin to bring with her. And part of what she does as I either as a malicious prank or possibly as some sort of like pagan curse spell thing, she cuts open one of the loaves of bread and puts a a live frog in it. I think the implication is that it was meant to be some sort of a curse. I was perplexed about the frog staying in it, but that did seem a little weird, didn't it? It's pretty chill about it. Yeah. It's like, okay. Anyway, so she puts the frog in the bread. So they head off and... They run into the guy who's the father of Ingrid's child. Right. <laughs> who is completely ignoring her and just hitting on Karin, who apparently he had danced with the night before. And, and it's unclear exactly... Because, like, when Ingrid's mad at her about it, she's just like, I just went I just went to try to convince him to take responsibility. And Ingrid makes a, you know snide comment about how he probably said he'd take responsibility if he could take you to bed or whatever. And it's unclear to me what Karin was actually doing. Um, if she, and because she seems like a girl who enjoys attention and flirting, Oh, definitely, yeah. Sure. I believe that she was, you know, pure by whatever standard they were using. But, like, also <laughs> she's like, I, I would also believe that she was sort of uh, encouraging his flirtations until she was. Yeah. I mean, that seemed to be, yeah, she said she danced with everyone who asked, basically. Like, right. that's kind of her. She'll, she'll take the attention from anyone. Right. So, and, you know, whatever. They keep going. And then they get to the edge of the forest, and Ingrid gets really upset. And I'm not sure I totally know why. <laughs> well, she saw a raven. Okay. Which I know is like, a, like, like a, a bad omen kind of thing. I mean, ravens are very significant sure. with Odin. and uh, So I, I assume, I don't totally understand it either, but I assume that was part of it. So she gets very upset and she doesn't want to go into the woods. And Karin is like, 
you know, we're going to go into the woods. Everything will be fine. Oh, Karin did slap her when she made the comments. Yeah, when they had the whole argument earlier, yeah. She seemed to feel bad about it, but more in my read, at least, more in the sense of, like, like, that wasn't an okay thing to do, but, like, eh, I don't know. Yeah. She's not a super uh, sympathetic character. No, she's a brat. She's a brat. And it's not really, it's really not exactly her fault. Like, she is young and she is treated in a way that no one else is and has never and will never have the opportunity to learn differently. But she is a difficult child. (laughs) So, but she's like, no, we're going to go into the woods. We're going to whatever. And Ingri, this like dude comes out of a cabin next to the stream and starts talking to them, says he can help Ingrid with her problem. And Ingrid runs away from Karin and goes into the house with the dude. And then there's this whole scene. I had completely forgotten about this scene. I didn't remember how that played out at all either. But... Do you want to you want to describe it? Well, they, they go into this cabin together and he's, you know, very sort of creepily, creepily obsequious and has her sit down and keeps making comments about how long it's been since he's had a woman around. And I mean, the he ends up showing her this box full of like sort of morbid presumably magical objects including a severed human finger and a dead bat and a handful of other things and then i mean assaulting her really like he starts grabbing at her and she runs off yeah i'm pretty sure the guy only again this is i i don't know as much about this stuff as i would like to so i'm not totally sure if the connections i'm drawing are legit but i'm pretty sure the guy only had one eye Oh, maybe. Which is also a, an Odin thing. Yeah. And he was clearly like a, a pagan practitioner of some kind. Right. And she gets freaked out, I think, not just of him grabbing her. She makes a comment about him him using human blood. Yeah. Right. That he had made a blood sacrifice. Yeah. He had made a blood sacrifice to Odin. Right. Like, honestly, one of the things that is interesting about the Virgin of Spring is how little it bothers to explain anything. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe all of this stuff would be a lot clearer to, you know, someone who lived in Sweden. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, someone who's more familiar with the the underlying mythology. I don't know. Right. But, I mean, it's, it's it's not our mythology. That's true. So anyway, so she, she manages to get away and she, she runs away. And in the meantime, and is like running through the woods looking for Karen, for Karen. And in the meantime, Karen has been, you know, cheerfully trotting her way. She's very like, it, it definitely never crosses her mind until it's much too late that anyone would hurt her. No, no, not at all. She's definitely innocent in that sense of the word. Like she just, she, I don't know if it's that she thinks she just assumes because of her position and her father's sort of nobility or whatever that no one would, or if it just doesn't occur to her that there are people like that in the world or what it is. I'm not sure exactly, but yeah. So she, she's trying. And then we meet the three people. So it's, it's, there's a older brother, who has his tongue cut out. So presumably he right. had some sort of... That guy is... They really went all out with the character design on that guy. He's like... He is like so greasy looking. He's yeah. practically dripping. <laughs> just... And then there's the other older brother who is the talker of the group. And then the kid who's maybe like 12. Um, yeah. He's very young and who looks kind of freaked out all the time. Mm-hmm. And who definitely gets the shit beat out of him by his brothers a lot. Yeah. And so they see the girl, they see the girl riding along and the two brothers sort of hatch a plan. We don't really hear what they say, but we see them doing it. And so they sort of cheerfully walk along with some goats that they have definitely just stolen. <laughs> Uh, well, they, they had the goats when we first saw them. I think that I think we they did, were but she says she order. says that they're someone else's markings. Something about their markings was what freaked her out. Oh, so that's interesting because she did. I caught that line, 
Because like she said that and then she she looked really scared. You're right. I think you're right. Because I, I didn't I didn't catch the significance of that line. I thought that she said this looks like something's marking, but I didn't catch that she was talking about like a brand. I thought she was talking about like some natural marking that the goat had on it that reminded her of like a saint's symbol or something. And it freaked her out. I, I was really I was really confused by it. And like I Googled the name to try to figure out if I could to try to figure it out. And all I could find was stuff related to the movie and I couldn't find an explanation. But your answer makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah, my my read was that they had stolen the goats and that they were claiming to whatever, and that she recognized the brand. As yeah, no, that, one of their that makes way more sense. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so they've stolen the goats, and they're, they come along, and he's playing like a mouth harp, and she's delighted, because she likes all things that are fun and whatever, and uh, stops her horse and, you know, asks about the mouth harp, and he says it was a gift from our dead mother, and, you know, we're brothers. Our mother died too young. She's like, who takes care of you? Oh, we're goat herds, whatever. And so she she offers them her, her lunch that has been packed for her and uh, is a little freaked out by the guy who can't talk. But, you know, she's not freaked out enough. I mean, yeah, they tell her that they'll only take the lunch if she agrees to come and eat with them. Right. And she just goes with them. She, like She has a moment of being like, I don't know, I have to get the candles to the church. And then they're like, OK, but like it's already passed. Right. You missed the service already. There's no rush. Yeah. And so she, she doesn't like, seem to be scared of them, really. Like, no, she's a little unsure, but like, <laughs> you know, and so they go they go to some meadow and, you know, set up and she cuts the piece of bread without the frog in it into four pieces, <laughs> gives it to each of them, keeps slapping their hands away until she's done praying. Right. Um, she, they ask where her house is, and she tells this sort of fanciful tale about it being... I liked the language, though, about it being like such a... It's such a yeah. big house that you have to touch your head, you have to touch your neck to the back of your... You're back to your back, back to look at the to top, look at of, the it, top yeah. of it. And my mother's my mother has so many keys that she can't carry them on her loop. And a maid follows her around carrying them on a pillow. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. she's very into the like sort of fanciful. I'm a princess right. kind of thing. Like that's her whole thing with wanting to dress beautifully and ride to, you know, like it's all part of her. This little fantasy world thing that she has playing out in her head. And they all kind of laugh and then they, they keep like they keep physically encroaching on her. Like they keep, yeah. you know, finding reasons to and she kind of pulls away eventually and is and like hands the other piece of bread um, to the boy and is like, you know, maybe you want to cut that up. And she's like, oh, but maybe you don't have a knife. And then one of them takes the knife. And I think it's around then that she sees the goat. Meanwhile, Ingri has found them and she is terrified and hiding. And she picks up a rock to like throw it at them, but then she drops it. Um, and so she ends up being a witness to the girl getting raped in what is a fairly long scene. It really is. It, and it's, it's not this. Yeah. This is not like it starts and they cut away. The whole thing happens on screen. It's really, it's uh, yeah, it's pretty intense. And so she, she's raped and is, you know, looking in shock and, and horror and kind of gets up and like stumbles away. And then one of the brothers hits her in the head with a uh, like a club or something, a branch, mm -hmm. and she falls over and is dead. And then we get a scene, I think from Ingrid's perspective, kind of farther back of them stripping all of her clothes off her and just except for like her bottom shift and just leaving her there. And then they show up at the house that night. And of course, the parents are worried because neither of the girls has returned. And the husband just keeps telling his wife, like, you know, she stayed in the village without her permission before. She, you know, she's I'm sure she's fine whatever and the wife yells at him and he tells these men like they have dinner and it's sort of an awkward dinner that I mean, the little boy is like so fucking traumatized and 
you know, at one point tried to eat some of the bread after they killed her and like saw her looking at him and like threw the bread up. Well, I think I think the boy had also figured out whose house they were in. Do you think? Because the the grace that the father said was the same one that she said. Oh, I didn't catch that. And that was, yeah, but I don't think the others figured it out, but I think that was part of the thing he he knew, or at least he suspected. Uh Or, I mean, at the very least, it reminded him of. Right. Yeah, I didn't didn't catch that. So he's he's terrified. He, like, knocks over his bowl of soup or something at some point, and um, they're just like, oh, he's just freaked out. And the mom tries to like get the maid to take care of him or whatever but they're like no no no. So they so he leaves them in this sort of main room um and tells them to leave the fire on cuz it's going to be cold and the little boy has an interaction. Yeah, that whole thing was kind of weird. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. I don't know either. Yeah, one of the one of the other members of the household who is like a I guess an employee. He, I don't think he's a family member, but he's he's not like he doesn't seem to be like a servant, but he's like maybe the guy who minds the like oversees the farm or something. Yeah, something. Sits down and has this lengthy monologue about the nature of life and humanity that was, <laughs> I don't know, it was interesting. With the little boy looking increasingly terrified. He talks about like the smoke trying to stay in. Like being afraid to go out of the smoke hole, even though once it gets out there, it's going to have the whole sky to da- dance around in, but it doesn't know that. So yeah. It, Tries to stay inside. I mean, it's pretty speech. And the I'm people not are the same way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then the the mother and father are in the bed, and she's you know climbing the walls, worried about Karen. And then they hear something. Uh, she thinks she hears the little boy cry out, and so she goes to see what's going on. And they're like, "Oh no, it's it was an owl. It's been an owl all night." <laughs> <laughs> Smooth cover, guys. And so she walks up to the little boy and, like, he's bleeding from his mouth. <laughs> it just knocked him unconscious, presumably. He started crying or something. And, you know, she sort of backs away. And at this point, the dude pulls out the shift of this, of her daughter and is like, this is, this was, this is the only thing we have left of our late sister. And, you know, perhaps you could take it and, and fix it. And it's got blood on it. It's, you know. Um, and she's like, Wisely, I might add, good for her. Yeah, she she's, plays it very she well. Play, she does. She does an amazing job when you know that she's literally falling to pieces. She like you can see her realizing. And again, like Bergman is so good at finding actors who can let so much go across their face, like with such little movement. <laughs> um, and you know, you can see her realize and understand what she's holding. And the setup of the scene is definitely such that you're very aware that these like two large men are in the room with her and could definitely kill her before anyone knew. And she finally manages to say something like, you know, I'll have to ask my husband what an appropriate, you know, reward for such a beautiful gift would be or something like that. Um, And she manages to get out of the room. She has a momentary breakdown and then she puts the, the bar on the outside of the door so that they can't leave. And then she goes to her husband and says, you know, this is, this is Karin's, thing what are you gonna do and he you know has his moment and then says that he's gonna um first you need to lock the door and she's like well done that like (laughs) what's Mm. next and so then he goes out and at this point ingrid gets i I think she's just getting home probably she didn't have a horse yeah and falls on her knees at the you know at the feet of this of this guy and is sobbing and saying this is all her fault she she wished for it to happen and tells him in fairly graphic detail what they did to his child and says you know he should kill her first whatever and he sort of lets her do her thing and then is like okay go get go boil the milk and i will get 
some spruce. Was it spruce? Uh, willow, I think. Anyway, and then we watch him tear down a tree with his bare yeah, fucking hands. Yeah, I mean, that's, visually speaking, that's the most iconic thing in this movie. Is this one broad shot of him approaching this kind of uh, very small tree? But and still, just, a like, tree. I, yeah, no. It's, I mean, it's. I say very small. It's. 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 You know, it's. It's a trunk small enough that you could wrap your hands around it, but it's like twenty feet tall. Yeah. And he just like attacks it and knocks it down and cuts some branches off of it. Um, and it is, it's a very striking, like broad shot with the tree right in the center. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite an image. It's very beautiful, heartbreaking. And then he does some sort of ritual. Right. I think this is the, he's, he's sort of, uh, he's leaving his Christianity behind long enough for him to take revenge on these guys, I think is the idea. So he takes these branches and, and like, it does this thing where he sort of like, I guess beats himself with them. That's what it looks like. But it's like a cleansing. I don't know if it's some sort of cleansing ritual or if it's meant to be like a. I'm sure smarter people than us have talked. About yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't. I don't know exactly what it is. He does some kind of ritual, and then he goes into the place and he kills both the older brothers, which you know they sucked. And I mean, you know, by modern standards, it's not exactly gory or anything. No, but he like pretty, strangles them intense. and like throws them on top. I mean, he stabs the one yeah. guy and then chokes the other one out and leaves him on the fire. And yeah, yeah, it was pretty intense. And, um, then, and then he turns to the child, right? Who the mother tries to step in and protect, but to no avail. And he picks him up with his bare hands and throws mm-hmm. him against the wall, which is very brutal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then he's like, "Okay, we have to go. We have to go find. We have to go find her body." And so then the whole household goes, and Ingrid Ingrid leads them to where it was, and again is like, "I was wishing." And on the way, the mother is like, "It's my fault. I was jealous." Right. This is the thing. They all. They are. They all are kind of blaming themselves. Like, right. Um, the father insisted that she go, and the mother, you know, gave in and allowed it, and also like dressed her up super pretty. And, well, and uh, also I. Th- I thought that her her line was super interesting that she that she was jealous of the relationship that he had with her mm-hmm. that she was angry that he that she always seemed to love her father more than she loved her right. and like that that's a really complicated dynamic so yeah so they're all kind of blaming themselves tromping through the woods they find her body they have like a a moment with it crying over the body and then the dad goes by the stream and has this prayer to God where he he says something like, you saw, like, you you let this happen. You saw them kill her. You saw me kill them. And you let this happen. How could you do that? And then he's like, but I'm going to, I'm going to believe in you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, because this is the only way I know how to make peace with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, I'm, I'm going to build a church where my daughter's body fell, which I get the significance Kind of, but also I feel like there's still kind of a pagan element to building a church <laughs> over, a bl- a, over a, the blood of a dead virgin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, not a great religion in my mind <laughs> to build yeah. a church over a dead virgin. <laughs> anyway, so he has this very you know compelling person and then he um, picks up the body and lays it down in the spring, as Joel said, comes out of nowhere and Ingrid starts drinking from it thirstily. And they all sort of end up in this like tableau position where the parents are like holding Ingrid, similar to a lot of like paintings of um, the Virgin and Christ. Yeah, there's a whole thing. And 
that it is. Mm-hmm. So I know that our our father was not thrilled to watch the Bergman movies because our father doesn't like subtitles. Yeah, that was that was a bit of a like I was I meant to say that earlier like that we were so taken with these movies and the way we that they determined. Yeah, we were going to get over that barrier of having our dad watch this weird black and white foreign drama which is the opposite of his thing it sure is in fact we were so determined we were going to make him watch three Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i'm sure we would have made him watch more if we could have probably so i mean i think these are are these the only subtitled movies we watched uh no because we did um we did that that french christmas one that we haven't got to yet uh, so there were a few but not and, I mean, we already covered one, the Israeli one that we did, that was... Oh, Ushpizen, right. There were several, but, um, you know, there, there wasn't any other director that we watched three of his movies, so... <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think there was. The Passion, I guess, is, is uh, subtitled. Oh, Christ, we're going to have to watch The Passion again. I know. The last time I watched it was so boring. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about it later. We'll get to it. So, I recall him, like, grudgingly finding them somewhat interesting, but definitely always seeming a little perplexed as to why we were so obsessed with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he could get into the conversations that they brought up and stuff, but he didn't really get why we enjoyed them, I don't think. <laughs> Dad does not have great, I don't know if I believe per se, for the most part, in bad movie taste, but he has very basic movies. Yeah. <laughs> he likes very basic stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, like, is fine. Uh, it's it's certainly not, like, the worst element about our father. It's just, it's partly just funny because he is such, he is such a thing about stories and, like, the importance of stories, but then he only likes, like, the most <laughs> simplistic <laughs> of stories. I don't yeah. know. Anyway. But so, I don't remember what we talked about. I assume we talked some about about the prayer, mm-hmm. and I, I can't remember how I would have perceived that at the time. <laughs> I'm not totally sure either. Um, the- it's hard to remember when your brain thought about things totally differently. <laughs> Yeah. One thing that I was thinking about watching at this time that I don't think I really would have been that cognizant of at the mm-hmm. time, even though it seems fairly obvious, is the theme of this the sort of conflict between the paganism and Christianity. And I'm kind of curious where where you think the movie lands on that, because I like, do you think that it sees both as equally useless or do you think that it kind of falls on one side or the other? I am not sure. And this this could be my own read on the situation, of course. I am not sure that Bergman would and maybe he did. But I like when I watch his movies, I don't necessarily think that he's describing faith as useless so much as that it is a tool that is used by people for their own ends. Mm. And so like the benefit of the faith doesn't really have much to do with the faith, but has, but like, this is the way, this is a way in which we make sense of our world. Right. Um, which is, which is what I more or less believe about faith, that, that it is a meaning making tool that we have come up with to, yeah, to, to make sense of a world that is scary and is big to make sense of death to make to make sense of these things that we cannot like cognitively make sense of. And I think that everyone does that. I think, you know, I am an atheist who doesn't believe in any faith, but I certainly have my own systems in place that I use to make sense of my world um, and to make meaning. I I just don't know enough about like Swedish history and stuff to, because I mean, like, you know, belief in Odin and and all of that paganism stuff that was sort of like run roughshod over by Christianity, like many faiths, like 
it could be argued that what happens in the film is that you know when it when it when the metal hit the, <laughs> the rubber hit the road so to speak christianity wasn't enough uh but that then maybe that's what he needed i don't know i feel like there's like a I feel like there is a, like, societal undercurrent there that I just don't understand well enough. Like, I don't understand enough of the history well enough to know how to take some of that. But I don't Mm. ever feel like Bergman thinks that faith is useless, because if that was the case, it would be a lot less dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I guess what I'm wondering about is what he, like, like, how how did you come away thinking that he felt about the paganism aspect of it. Did he see that as a dangerous force that, you know, Christianity had a civilizing effect on? I feel like that's the easy read here. I don't know if I do think that. I don't know that I think it either, but... <laughs> I think that he... Because, and of course, I'm I'm partly just looking at this in, in context of his other... of the other films of his that I have seen, mm-hmm. where I feel like he is particularly in the beginning when he's trying to work through a lot of this. I don't ever feel like I come away from his films thinking that Christianity is any kind of net good. Yeah. Uh, like, like, and that's not to say that it doesn't serve a purpose or whatever, but but his films largely seem to reflect a certain, like, grasping at it out of desperation, a claustrophobia, and an ability to leave it which I'm sure were things he probably experienced at different mm-hmm. points in his life. And I'm certainly familiar with those feelings as well. I don't know. I don't know how he felt about the paganism. It's in there a lot. Like it is a, it is as powerful of a force, if not arguably more so than Christianity. Yeah. But does it have any, it seems like it's mostly a negative force, uh, you know, assuming that we're, we're meant to believe that it was in fact, Ingerie's prayer that caused this to happen. I don't know if we are. See, that was not my impression. Uh, I I kind of assumed, I guess I kind of assumed that it was, like, yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of assumed that it was all equally, like, in terms of it making things happen. Again, this is our putting a framework onto something that doesn't make sense. Like, right. there is no good way to explain why a 15-year-old child should be brutally raped and murdered, much less that then the guys show up at your fucking house that night. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have, there is no good for, because there is not a good explanation for that. There is no, right. and that all of the, that all of the rituals and things that we see taking place on the pagan side of thing are in many ways mirrored by all of the rituals that the mother is doing to God. And none of it stops or makes anything happen. Right. But it creates a world that people feel like they can make something in. It creates a frame that makes things seem f- feel safer, although not safer enough, or that makes things feel explainable. That would be my read mm-hmm. on it, because I think that we saw a lot of rituals from both sides. And in the end, it's clear. Like, I don't think it's that paganism won. I just don't think either of those things mattered in the events. They only mattered in how people interpreted the events. Yeah. I mean, they, they mattered some in terms of how people behave too. I mean, the, the, like we talked about with that, he, he went through this whole sort of cleansing ritual or whatever, before he went and killed the guys, like he had to kind of step out of his Christianity and into this other thing in order to, but see, that's where the colonialism thing comes into me. That's where I feel like the thing that I thought of while I was watching it, which is a movie we did not watch for this group, but definitely would have if it had been out by then, was Silence. And the idea that you can put a faith on top of another faith. Like, you can you can come into a culture and, you know, push your 
your faith and convert people forcibly in silence and whatever. But their understanding of the world and their own beliefs don't go away. Right. Like they're under the surface and probably impacts how they perceive these new beliefs that you have put onto them. And arguably it becomes no longer even the same faith. (laughs) Right. It's kind of the point of silence. But I think that's what I thought of, of this idea that this paganism has been like rooted out, so to speak, but that it's, it's there. It is inherent and intrinsic in the culture. And that again, when the most horrible thing happens, it like comes back up. That, that was my read. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any additional thoughts on that? Or? Uh, no, I mean, I didn't, I hadn't really landed anywhere on that. I was just, it's just something that I was thinking about a lot that I don't think had really been on my mind when we watched it before. No, because we had such boring conversations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like the thing that I think about when I try to think what I would have thought at the time, God, I just really can't. I'm like something about vengeance, something about forgiveness, something about, (laughs) I just, I don't know. I I don't know how, because to, to some way, I'm sure I would have come up with words to talk about it, but in a lot of ways, what I was seeing was like a reflection of the doubt and the things that weren't lining up for me. And that was what spoke to me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So I would have had to find another way <laughs> to talk about it. I don't know. Anyway, that's pretty much my thoughts on The Virgin Spring. It's a good movie. Go watch Bergman movies if you feel like something sedate and Yeah. I mean, really in terms of in terms of entry point, I d- I would recommend The Seven Sealed just because yes. it, it like plot-wise it is definitely the most accessible. And Joel's right. It's it's funny and it's it's Like, it's a much more enjoyable movie than you would think. I actually think in terms of entry points, this one would not be the worst if you're as long as, you know, know what you're going into. But if it's the kind of thing you can handle, it's a pretty straightforward plot. It's a pretty short movie. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, very well acted and all that. Like, it's this this would not be a bad starting point if you're looking to get into his stuff. But yeah, I think if you have now that we've just talked about in great detail, but whatever, it's still good. No, again, like the, the plot of this is so simple. Literally, the. On Letterboxd, the plot summary that they have goes through the entire plot. It's one paragraph, and it, it just goes through the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is that like such a simple – it's almost impossible to t- talk about it without talking about what happens in it. Yeah, no, that's like, how the whole thing plays out. But I, I, yeah, I think if you are like Joel said, like knowing what you're getting into, like, are you a person who has watched? Like, I think it would be hard. It might be a hard entry point if you've like never watched like 60s foreign films. Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you don't have much experience in like films outside of whatever, I think it might be a hard entry point. Seven Seal will be better, but yeah, I mean, like if you if you have some experience in that realm and somehow still haven't seen Bergman, this would not be a terrible one. Mm-hmm. And they're all up on Criterion. So, <laughs> also, I, I found out when reading about this one that um, a big influence for him apparently on this was that he was a huge fan of Kurosawa's Rashomon. Oh yeah, I think I remember hearing that. Which of course also, I mean, that movie also revolves around a rape, assault, and pe- various people who witnessed it and their perspectives on it. Yeah, I can totally see that. So he he apparently said. Bergman apparently said later and he kind of wrote off the Virgin Spring as a poor imitation of Kurosawa later in his life, which I don't think is fair. But, um, but yeah, so that, that's an interesting pairing if you're uh, if you're looking to get into 
Also mm. up on Criterion, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kurosawa was, like I mentioned before, that Jared and I had these these four directors that we were going through all of their stuff, and one of them was Bergman. Another one was Kurosawa. Like, he's, but I was not one. a part of that. I have still only seen Akira and... Um, you mean Ikiru? Akiru. Ikiru. Akira is and that. Yeah. <laughs> I have also seen Akira, but Akira yeah. and not, uh, <laughs> and not doing animated movies. Uh, Ran, uh, Seven Samurai is still one of. Wait, me. really? Those are the only two you've seen? Yep. I haven't even seen Ran, but because again, because we were going through stuff chronologically, so we never got. For whatever it's worth, I fucking loved Ran. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I can't believe I haven't watched that yet, but I have not. I mean, that's how There's... I feel about Seven Samurai. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I think that we should probably move on to what we're watching next. We probably, and, yeah, we probably because it's yeah. yeah. So we're gonna spend some time going through what we've been watching lately. So try to make it quick, but you know. So. All right, how about seventeen? <laughs> oh great, Seven, what is it? Seventeen is Bruce Almighty. Oh okay, I'm not I'm not dreading that one. I haven't watched that one in years, and I suspect I'll probably find it a lot more offensive now than yeah. I did then. But, uh, but I'm 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 not mad about that. All I'm right. curious to watch that again. All right, yeah. So Bruce Almighty, it is. <laughs> okay. So, you want to go first, or shall I? I say, why don't we start with TV stuff? Sure. Because I suspect there's going to be some some crossover mm, okay. in that regard. I let's see. I, I and I have actually been watching more TV stuff than usual lately. So I find you may recall in I think like the first or maybe second episode of this, I mentioned that I had watched that I had started watching the Great, the Hulu I do. series, but. Catherine the Great. I was very finally good. finished it. Yay! <laughs> it took me a very long time. It's but so I did, fucking good. I did finally finish it. I liked it a lot. Um, I, I had some some things, you know, there were aspects of it that I liked less than others, but I I liked it a lot as a whole. I don't know if they're going to bring it back. I think they. But I hope they I do. I, well, I, I mean, I think they I think they had planned to, but all that stuff is right. Who knows at this point? So yeah, good stuff. I am a little curious how like I'm. A little bit concerned about. I mean, I know that the show is about Catherine, but like, how well is it going to work without Peter? I don't know. I mean, he might still be there, I guess. They didn't yeah. kill him, but he's clearly not going to be in the. I'm not super worried about it. I, don't get me wrong. That performance is fucking incredible. So, it's so good. I. It's it's a masterwork. I don't know how he does it. But, I was just reading, someone was just talking about the great on Twitter the other day and was lamenting how few gifts there were of it so far, which seem does seem truly weird. Mm. Um, but I've hardly heard anyone talking about it. Like I don't. I, I sold it to a few people, and I yeah. and I've heard a few people watch it, but it, not as much as I feel like it really did deserve. And I mean, for me, I'm just like it's so clearly it's it's you know done by the same person who wrote the favorite, and it, it has so much of that in it, which was like one of my favorite movies. So. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I have confidence that it'll be that it'll be good even without or with less of Peter. But I also like as phenomenal as Peter's performance is, um, which is so phenomenal. I do. I I mean, Elle Fanning is so good. Yeah, she's great. I don't know. I mean, everyone's great. It was very good. Anyway, I don't like the guy who 
plays her boyfriend. That's, really? That's my big really? complaint. I found his, I found, I, I mean, it wasn't the performance particularly. I found the character extremely annoying. I wanted him to go away. Oh, interesting. Okay. But that's my biggest complaint about the show, and that's a relatively minor one, so. All right. Well, not how I felt, but what? He was just a whiner. I didn't like him, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I think she's too good for him, but I think she's too yeah. good for fucking everyone, honestly. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I, I know I had seen him in something recently. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Keep going. <laughs> so once I finished that, I had see part of the reason why it took me so long to watch that is because usually when I have TV watching time, I am desperately scrabbling to catch up on various HBO things. Right. That is that is usually what I'm doing. But HBO seems to have finally run out of programming. They have. Uh, and I'm, also, I fucking... They, I, noticed they're, I noticed they're doing a lot of, like, foreign stuff right now, which I sh- some of it looks really interesting and I'd like to watch it, but I'm, I also am like, I'm going to pretend that's not there because I have too many other things to watch. I really, really dislike the setup of HBO Max. Me too. It doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't it, make it, any fucking sense. You can't tell what anything is. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like the first time I opened that, I was like, "Wait a minute! So what's the new stuff? Yes. How am, I, how am I supposed to know where my new shows are?" And eventually, I realized that like there just really isn't that much right now. But yeah. even when there is, I don't think there's it's really set up to highlight it. No, it's not. I f- yeah. there's too much stuff. It's messy and fucking cluttered, and they did, mm-hmm. it looks awful, and I hate it. I hate going into it. Like they have a lot more stuff now, but they have too much, and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I I'm with you on that. I think yeah. I was but. just bitching Derek about this the other day i was like it's and he's like well did you look here and i'm like yes i looked there i know there are like categories now but they are not actually that helpful yeah i mean it's one of those things like if you specifically know what you want to watch you can search for it and find it but if you're just like i would like to see what new shows are currently running on hbo there isn't really a place to go to for that nope yeah anyway since i no longer have the burden of keeping up on hbo stuff (laughs) for the moment at least i'm sure it'll come back I have been actually had the opportunity to watch some other stuff. So that's when I I finished, finished that one. And, but I also, have you watched or do you know about, oh, fuck, now I'm going to blank on the name of it. Uh, It's a Hulu, um, Remy. It's called Remy. Oh, I watched the first episode of Remy and I wasn't super caught and it's still on my watch list, but I haven't watched anymore. Okay. So it's been kind of in on my radar for a long time, but I hadn't gotten around to it. But I particularly wanted to watch it because, uh, Mahershala Ali is in the second season, mm. uh, and I love him. So, so I, I I started on that one. Really liked it. I've already watched both seasons of it. It's a really like, it's one of those like uh, I know that this is not this is probably not the most flattering comparison to make, but it's like the Louis thing where it's it's a stand up comic got a deal to make a show that was like a loose adaptation of his own life. Right. There's a lot of those right now, um, and also it's one of those like child of immigrant stories, which there's also a bunch of right now. Mm-hmm. Which is great. It is. I agree. I'm, I tend to enjoy those. But this one this one t- took an angle that to me was really interesting because in my experience, at least with those stories, usually the the angle is that you've got these immigrant parents and the American-born child slash main character in whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. And the conflict is about how they have sort of left behind the traditions that their parents came from. And this causes conflict with their parents and they're trying to figure out their identity and all this but this one almost takes the opposite approach where Remy is trying to figure out how to be a good Muslim mm. in modern America. Like he's still, you know, he like he has friends and he wants to go out and party and he's having sex with people and stuff. But he's also like actually interested in 
being a good Muslim and wants to figure out how to make it work, which I don't think I've ever seen quite that angle taken, certainly not with Islam. So there's also that aspect, too. There's, um, you know, just aspects of the practice of Islam that I've never seen portrayed on screen before. Yeah. No, I should go back to it. I It's not that I hated it. It just didn't like yeah. me and then I got distracted. Yeah, I recommend it. And he's really good. I mean, he's it's one of it's not quite the the Louis level of, you know, he wrote, directed, edited every episode. It's not quite that, but he directed a bunch of it and it's all, you know, it's it's definitely his baby. Cool. And he's great. The second season definitely takes a bit more of a serious turn than the first season did, which was interesting, but and again Mahershala Ali is in it and he's great. So, yeah, I recommend it. And then once I caught up with that, I discovered that after we just finished talking shit about the new HBO thing here, that the show Search Party is now on HBO. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard good things. So I've been wanting to watch this show ever since it started because I've heard I've heard good things about it. And it has Aliyah Shrakat in the lead role, who I love. Mm -hmm. And the idea of her getting a lead role in a TV show is very exciting to me. But it was on, like, TBS or some shit. Yeah. Like, it was some network that I had no access to anywhere, so I just never had a chance to watch it. And then I'd heard that it, after the first season that the plot takes a completely different and even more interesting turn than the first season. And, I had, like, I kept hearing all this great stuff about it, but I just never had a chance to watch it. But apparently it's on HBO now. Like, they TBS canceled it and HBO picked it up. But at any rate, so I started on that, and it is great. It is every bit as good as I'd heard it was, and I'm already into the second season. All right. So there's that. And then I don't remember where the Mandalorian was last time we talked. Um, that was still going. It finished season the last two of that. episode was mid-December. So probably. Oh, do we do we want to talk about? No, let's not. I don't I don't want to. We can talk about it, but let's not do the spoiler. Thing. OK, <laughs> Just that's fair. Uh, <laughs> I do have some thoughts, but uh, yeah, we can yeah, talk we'll, about it. We'll <laughs> say that. But I have been watching WandaVision. Yes. Which I assume you have also been watching. I haven't watched the newest episode yet, but I, hopefully today. I watched the first two. Okay. Uh, what do you think so far? Loving it. Yeah, no, Loving it's... Uh, it. uh, I'm I'm still, like, like, I kind of don't believe that it's going to continue to be this good. Like, it just doesn't seem possible. Also, Anya showed up in the second episode. She did, That was yeah. very exciting. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, like, it's so nice to be able to see Paul Bettany getting to, like, actually act again. Yes. And Elizabeth, and like, like, fucking Elizabeth Olsen is criminally underrated. <laughs> right. Well, and criminally underused in yes. the Marvel universe. Oh, 100%. Like, she's got nothing to do in any of those. So, she, and she's great. And fucking Catherine Hahn is oh in it. Oh, my God. And who's, like, one of my favorite Let's people in the world. Let's worship at Catherine Hahn's feet. <laughs> she is so fucking good. But uh, on top of all that, it is, like, genuinely weird in a way that nothing in the Marvel universe has ever yes. had the nerve to be. And, like, I know, I actually know, like, I have never read the comics that it's coming from, but I listened to a podcast at some point where they explained the the comics it was coming from. So I actually know what's happening, more or less. But it has not made it any less enjoyable for me. Yeah. I, it had, there was a moment in the, I think it was in the first episode, maybe the second episode, that was, it, it achieved a thing that very few people other than, the person who this thing is named after have ever achieved, which is that it was genuinely Lynchian. <laughs> uh, I would never have seen that coming from a Marvel property. The, the magic show? Uh, no, no, no. I guess it was the first episode. It was oh. the, the moment where the boss starts choking yes. at dinner. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And the, that's a the wife just keeps laughing and like, oh, stop it. And he's clearly like dying. He's passed out on the floor and it's the close up shots of everyone's face and like 
it was very Lynchy, and I'm yeah, sure it's deliberate. That's like, true. That's true. I hadn't thought yeah. of that, but as not a Lynch fan, but I. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, but uh, I'm still like I, I'm a little bit. I feel like maybe they're cracking the facade a little bit too soon, and I'm worried that like it's just gonna turn into a, another stupid special effects fest by the end of it. I mean, maybe, but I do. I don't know. It is fun, like. It was fun for me because, you know, the first episode is Dick Van Dyke and the second episode is mm-hmm. I Dream of Jeannie. And I have I have seen a few episodes. I mean, I have in my life, but like I just watched all of the Dick Van Dyke show like a year or two right. ago. And I, yeah, and I, I did the same thing. I watched I didn't watch all of it, but I watched a bunch of it. And so like um, so Eric, I, I didn't, Eric was like, oh, I didn't even realize. And I was like, that's the house. That's their right. house. Like that's all of that. And he was just like. Oh, like he didn't even know. Um, yeah, and see, I think I think going forward, I'm actually going to have less because I have no familiarity with sitcoms from the 70s and 80s. I know nothing about them, but yeah. that does seem to be the, like it's carrying forward that way. So I'm going to I think I'm going to get less what, going forward. I, I think the same for me, but it was fun to see an episode where I did get like all of the yeah for sure yeah. <laughs> of it. So yeah, no, it's great. I'm I'm really I'm really excited about it. I love getting love love seeing Elizabeth Olsen getting mm-hmm. to do something. Um, <laughs> and like I love it enough that I I watched uh, the first season of her I'm sorry for your loss show on fucking Facebook. Really, I, I started that and then I I liked it. I just never like it was just, it was one of those things like I just never went back to it because I'm never on that app. <laughs> no, I I understand. I um I I haven't watched the second season for that reason. But I is there a second? Season? There is. is that, yeah, yeah. that service isn't still going, is it? I think it is. I don't know. Oh, weird. Anyway, but there is a second okay. season. I never got around to watching it. But she, she is. It just makes me sad how like criminally underappreciated she is. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I agree. Anyway, um, I think that's all the TV I've done. So I don't know. What? What? Do you have any other TV you want to talk about? Oh, do I? I do. Yeah, um, <laughs> okay, I'm gonna try to go fast though. So Hilda season two is up. It's good. I need to watch it a second time. I was in a weird headspace when it came out, but it is. Um, it is. I finished The Leftovers. Finished it. I forgot you hadn't finished Five fucking years later. I need to rewatch that one, man. (laughs) That that last season in particular is so out there. It was very good. I liked it Mm -hmm. a lot. I I just kept getting increasingly angry at Matt and Kevin as the show progressed, and it got harder for me to watch because I just wanted to kill them all the time. Mm. Um... (laughs) But but we did finish it, and I'm done, so that was good. Uh, well worth watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that's up on HBO right now that, um, for anyone listening who might be like me and, and really like things about cults, they put up a Heaven's Gate uh, oh, yeah. four-part yeah. cult, which I did not know a lot about Heaven's Gate other than the obvious thing that everyone knows about Heaven's Gate. And honestly, I found it fucking fascinating. I Partly because, I mean, in, in many ways, it starts out and is structured similarly to a lot of cult documentaries if this is a thing that you watch but it really it's it's not quite the same like Mm. it it really is i mean don't get me wrong i didn't come away believing in heaven's gate although there are still people alive who do Mm -hmm. i'm not sure that i think they were unhappy Mm. uh which is which is a really interesting i mean you know don't get me wrong like there was certainly damage that was wrought um on their families and such but it it really does not None of the footage of them, none of, like, they're all just weird fucking sweet nerds who got, like, pulled into this thing, and the guy didn't really seem to benefit that much. I mean, again, there's there's a very specific arc of most cult leaders where they end up raping their followers and, like, all this, and none of that 
I mean, he did some fucked up stuff, and I think it's clear he was ill. But um, it, it it's not the same, and it, it's really mm. interesting. Um, and it's, it's, interesting. it's really, really worth watching the four episodes. Four episodes, 50 minutes. It's it's really fascinating. So that. Flight attendant. Excellent. Okay. Good stuff. I, I've, heard, I've heard a few things about that, but I, I have not watched it. Really, really loved it. Kaylee Kuko? I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Anyway, <laughs> her. Just absolutely slaying. Uh, getting a part where she gets to actually, like, do something. Um, overall, I thought it was just... It was just a great binge show. Really, really good. Um, So, and, you know, whatever. I watched the shows that everyone's been watching. I watched uh, The Queen's Gambit. It was good. I watched Bridgerton. I enjoyed it for the most part. I, yeah, I've watched those. But um, in terms of other things, one thing I started, Chris and I were going to watch more, um, we were going to watch more Disney Channel original movies, and um, then Disney wasn't working last night. <laughs> so instead, we had been talking about and we watched the first three episodes of Evil, which I had already seen, but I've watched the first season. But um, it's a fucking phenomenal show, and I'm so yeah, that's what I've heard. Like so enjoying rewatching it. It is just Robert and Michelle King are just fantastic fucking like uh showrunners they they just the women in their shows are just so complicated and fantastic the i mean mike coulter's in it obviously so obviously he's great also um what is his name is it michael emerson the mm-hmm. just, yeah, yeah, yeah which is really funny ben because for, i watched lost, yeah. i watched all five seasons of person of interest last year which was very good, in which he plays genuinely one of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest people on earth. Just like is just I loved him so much. And in Evil, he is literally a personification of evil, basically. <laughs> and he is so horrifying and like so like it's just Yeah, I, I can believe it. Oh I mean my he God. he's creepy just, as hell as Ben in Lost. Absolutely. He's it's, he's just so skilled. It was just yeah. so funny. It was such a whiplash to like to do both of them. But yeah. If one has a chance to watch Evil, it's especially if you enjoyed The Good Wife or whatever. Both The Good Fight and Evil, honestly, in my opinion, are worth paying for CBS for, even if it's just for mm. a couple months or whatever. They're just fucking fantastic. So um, just really enjoyed that. And I feel like Evil has been a little bit slept on. Partly, I think, maybe because it has a really boring title. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that probably doesn't help. But I do appreciate One of the things I was talking to Chris about last night when we were watching is that I appreciate... Like, you know, this is a show that in many ways does explore evil up to and including supernatural stuff. But there is, like, a lot of nuance and specificity to, like, how evil manifests in the world in ways that I think are really thoughtful and interesting. While also just being, like, a ton of fun to watch. Also, Asif Man- Man- Asif Man- Manji, yeah. um is one of the main characters in it. And I love him so much. <laughs> Cool. He's yeah, like so him. good, and just like he's just fantastic. So yes, go watch Evil. It's so excellent. I I love it very much. Other than that, I've mostly just been watching true crime and nothing that has been so great that I would super recommend it. But um, and Eric and I have been watching Ted Lasso. I rewatched it with him. I'm rewatching it with him. Ah uh, yeah. So that's right. I, I guess we talked about that one a little bit already, we, but I love that show. It's excellent. So yep. so yeah, that's that's what I'm gonna say for TV. But yeah, go watch Evil. Go watch, go watch Hilda if you haven't watched Hilda. Jesus, flight attendant, Heaven's Gate Colts. Okay, movies. Movies. Uh, I'm definitely going to skip some that I've watched because it's been. Yeah. No. Wolfwalkers. Yes. Did you watch that one? Right. Did we talk about that already? 
I don't know. I don't think we did. Because I watched Ace of Wonderful Life on December 6th, and I watched Wolfwalkers on the 13th. So I'm sure we re-recorded that episode between those two. It was so good and also gayer than their previous movies. I mean, that I don't. if it was gay at all, then it was gayer than their exactly. previous movies, from what I recall. But yeah. Uh, yeah, beautiful. Gorgeous. Really am irritated that I didn't get to see it on a big screen, but... Great movie. We, I watched a Herzog documentary called Nomad, which was a, a 2019 documentary that he did about a guy who who is like a travel writer guy who had been a friend of his named Bruce Chatwin, mm-hmm. who died of AIDS in the early 80s, I believe, okay. and had uh, like he had left some of his stuff to Herzog, and like the two of them had been very like kindred spirits in terms of their like you know wanting to just go out and put themselves out in the world in order to learn about it. And it's a really interesting documentary. It was really good. It was, and it was, it was a very, like a very personal one, you know, cause he, he always puts himself in his documentaries, but this one was much more, mm. a much more personal kind of thing for him. It seemed like, and it was really good. I watched, uh, watched the new Pixar movie soul, mm-hmm. which I assume you've watched by now. Right. I did. Yeah. Good movie. Uh, I thought it got a little muddled in the end. It was fine. And I've heard, yeah, I know. And I, I've heard and largely agree with a lot of the pushback against various aspects of it. I just feel like with, when it comes to Pixar, and it should be noted that I watched Soul on Christmas Day and I was like pretty depressed all Christmas season. So I was not like in the best space maybe to be watching it. But I just felt like I could like, I could like feel and see the mechanics and it just mm. it it did not it did not land for me in any kind, which I feel like is a thing that I've been having more and more struggles with with Pixar over mm. the last few years that I just I feel like the mechanics are so apparent to me and it just doesn't actually hit me in genuine feelings anymore. Um, mm. And there were things that I liked in it. But overall, I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I when a couple of weeks ago we had a conversation where you were talking about looking for some more movies directed by women to cram in before the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. And I recommended that uh movie had three movies by a, a Chinese woman named Anne Hui. You did. And I watched, and I don't, okay, I, was, I, was <laughs> I, I only watched one of them, but it was a movie called our time will come. Okay. It was about uh resistance guerrilla fighters in Hong Kong during the Japanese occupation during world war two, um, which was a, that is not a story that I have ever heard anything about. No. And uh, it was a pretty good movie. It covered a pretty broad swath of history. It was a very kind of large-scale story, but it's pretty good. Had some interesting uh, some interesting bits of detail that I feel like I've never seen. Like, I've watched movies about resistance movements and stuff, but, like, there was a, there was a scene early on in the movie where they were there was this meeting of these guys talking about how they were working on this plan to to smuggle a bunch of like intellectuals and professors and stuff who were being targeted by the Japanese to smuggle them out of the country. Mm-hmm. And they, they're having this conversation about how, like, once we get these guys, they're our responsibility. So we're going to have to basically, you know, everyone's living on rations at this point. So they're like, you know, we're, we're going to have to, we're all going to have to tighten our belts because we have to share our rations with these people until we get them out of the country. Mm-hmm. And so that, like that kind of just like practical, ground level aspect of that kind of thing i don't i didn't i don't think i've ever seen mm-hmm. explored before and it was interesting it's a good movie i watched the trial of the chicago seven i have not watched that yet yeah the uh new aaron sorkin movie who uh <laughs> yeah no i'm still i'm still uh, i still enjoy sorkin as a writer much more mixed on him as a director <laughs> his his previous directorial effort molly's game was terrible 
I never watched it. It was real bad. But this this one, I, I largely enjoyed this one. It's a very interesting story that, again, I didn't know much about. Has a hell of a cast. So, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. The, it is not like a I don't think it's a movie I'll go back to over and over again or anything, but I liked it. I'm glad I watched it. Right. Mank. Have you watched Mank yet? No. Nope. Oh, wait. Yes, I did. David Fincher. Yeah, I did not enjoy it. I did not either. I feel like it was basically uh, it was basically like Hail Caesar with all the fun sucked out of it. Oh, that's a good description. <laughs> it looked it, pretty. It was, I don't know. It was sure. But like, it's long. Honestly, it's the only it's the only time I've ever been bored by a David Fincher movie. Like, I haven't loved all of his stuff. I like most of it a lot. It's the only time I've ever found him boring. Yeah, I was not. I was not into it. So, yeah, no, uh, definitely a disappointment there because that was a big one I was looking forward to. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Have you watched that one yet? I did. Like that one a lot. Uh, again, maybe not quite as much as I was hoping to. Same. Honestly. Same. But I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Viola Davis is. Right. I mean, yeah, Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, they're both landmark performances. It's almost like. It, it was a little too stagey, I think. See, I don't have that. I don't have that issue. That's not a thing that bothers me. It doesn't me. always, but when it does, it does strike me. I will say that part of what I was, why I was so looking forward to it, aside from the cast and all that, is because Fences is. I fucking loved Fences. I don't remember what you thought of Fences. I like Fences a lot. I it's not a movie I think about much now, but I like. Oh no! See, I think Fences is probably one of the movies from the last decade or so that I find myself thinking about the most, even though I have not rewatched it. Oh, interesting. I think about I think about that movie all the time. Okay. <laughs> so I was then you know that is for anyone who doesn't know that Maureen's Black Bottom is based on a play by the same guy who wrote the play. The Fences was based on. So I, I had very high hopes for it in that regard, but it didn't quite live up to it to me but it was good it was definitely worth watching mm-hmm. let's see uh i watched ghost in the shell mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago okay. the, the anime one not the scarjo one okay. and it was cool as hell it had a lot of like uh it, it was interesting watching that after like i had i had actually just listened to our episode talking about the matrix mm-hmm. uh and there's a lot of i mean i and you know the i don't think the wachowskis would argue with this there's a lot of very specific uh, you know, like you have the computers that plug into the back of your neck and uh, <laughs> a lot of like really specific things that the the Matrix clearly borrowed or was paying homage to. Mm-hmm. And it was really cool. I liked it a lot. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. I watched last weekend. So good. Yeah. God, that movie killed me. Fucking brutal, but so good. I keep thinking, I'm trying, I don't want to, okay. I keep, the, the scene, the scene that the title comes from. Mm-hmm was so good that I literally <laughs> went to Planned Parenthood's website <laughs> to check and see if they were looking for social workers. That's a true story. <laughs> it is also one of the few times that I've ever, like, it's it's honestly very rare to see a scene with a social worker that feels like someone is doing, like, good social work and, yeah. like, whatever, and that was great. And the scene where she reaches around the pillar and just, uh-huh. grab, oh, my God. Oh, uh-huh. fucking shattering. <laughs> fucking shattering. I can't yep. even... Oh. Yeah. I need to no, watch that, it again. I mean... Yeah, I cannot fucking wait to see where Eliza Hittman goes with her career after that movie. And I should probably watch a few of her older ones, too, because, God, it was that was really something. It was. His House, have you watched that one? I did. I thought I recommended it to you. You might have. I, don't <laughs> I mean, you probably did if you feel like you did. But uh, that one was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, really cool, like uh, Haunted House. I think we slash, talked about it on the show. Uh, <laughs> 
We probably, I mean, we probably did because it came out since we started the show. So if you watched it, we probably would have talked about it. But yeah, I liked that one a lot. And it had, uh, what's her name from um, Lovecraft Country? Yes. Who was one of the better parts of that show, I thought. Absolutely. And she was great in this. Mm-hmm. And then last week, I also rewatched Muppet Treasure Island for the first time in, in a very long time and enjoyed the hell out of that. So <sighs> I know many people are fans. I just can't get over my Treasure Island hatred. No, I loved it. I hadn't seen it in years, but okay. I think that's all I'm going to talk about. I mean, that's like a third of what I've watched since we recorded the last one. But so I've actually not watched a ton of movies this year. It is, I mean, and I this is one of those things that I say that, and then I'm like, I have only watched 17 movies in this theater. <laughs> it's the 24th, um, but that's like fairly low for me. But I, in terms of last year. The only thing I want to mention, I got through more Agnes Varda movies, and I just want to say that Agnes Varda is a fucking goddess, and everyone should go watch more Agnes Varda movies. I haven't gotten mm-hmm. any this year, um, but I am still planning on continuing that project. One of the things that I believe you and I already had a conversation about this, I believe you got my uh, live tweet emotional response at the moment, but um, was that I decided I was going to watch On the Rocks. Because I was looking for more movies directed by women to watch, and I was like, fine, you know, I've watched all of Coppola's other other movies, and I have not been as big of a fan as you, but there are certainly movies of hers that I've liked. And I was not expecting, <laughs> I was not really expecting to like it very much, and I, like, went into the movie, and, like, by halfway through, I was, like, te- I was, like, messaging Joel, and just, like, why is Bill Murray so charming? <laughs> I know, right? An asshole! Why is he the worst? But also, I love him! And by mm-hmm. and then at some point I believe I sent you a message that was like, God damn it, I think I love this movie. <laughs> yeah, you ended up liking it more than me. I funny. may be one of the bigger fans of this movie that overall did not seem to get a huge amount of love, um, even from Coppola fans. You yeah, know, it got a very mixed response. But yeah. I fucking loved it. I thought it was just it. I walked away with a lot of questions that are none of my business about Coppola's relationship with her father. And mm-hmm. how much yes. uh, Bill Murray may remind her <laughs> of her father. But I, the fucking emotional nuance of that relationship, I, oh my God, there's just like, they, they have like a whole fight scene towards the end. And I was just like fucking sobbing. And I feel like a lot of people, and I think you brought this up when we were talking about, a lot of people have paired this when talking about with Lost in Translation for, I mean, yeah, that's for obvious, obvious reasons. Yeah, but I think right. that the yeah. much better comparison is somewhere. And not so much a comparison of movie, but it feels like a continuation of movie. Of like right. somewhere is a facet like somewhere is a movie that I like quite a lot by Coppola, which, you know, has Elle Fanning, who I just generally love in everything. And um, you know, has her playing like a I think she was like thirteen or something. Like she's she's still very young. Mm-hmm. And she has shitty parents. <laughs> On both sides, self-absorbed, so uh, like celebrity parents who just don't have time to take care of her. And like to me, when I watched somewhere, which is about like sort of her spending this summer with her dad, the rock star, and you can like see, you can see her like growing up throughout the course of the movie. And by the end of the movie, she still loves them both. But I like when I watched that movie, the the distinct thought I remember having is is at the end being like, give it a year, and you're going, you're going to understand so much more what has happened and why this is not okay. And you're going to be so mad. (laughs) (laughs) And I felt like, and to me watching on the rocks, this was really like, this was like the adult her trying to cope with having this impossibly charming 
I mean, not famous exactly, but kind of um, known by everyone everywhere he goes anyway. Father who like she wants to impress and she wants to and like, I don't know. I know that that is largely my own shit. But like, you know, I definitely remember what it was like to be willing to like bend over backwards and contort yourselves and do stupid shit because you want your dad to be impressed with you. It's it's just so good. It's just so good. People are not giving it enough credit. I think it's one of the best things she's done. <laughs> All right. Well, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. So, I think it is one that I will probably uh, probably enjoy watching again at some point. So. so that's the only thing I'm going to say about last year, because it's just it's just so fucking good. Anyway, um, this year I have watched a lot of Disney Channel originals. I rewatched Skate Kitchen uh, with a friend. Still fucking great. I rewatched The Girl with All the Gifts this week. And um, and Jason and I will be talking about that on the Idle Curiosities podcast, hopefully sometime in this next week. And I'm super excited about it. All I know so far is that they both loved it. So really pleased about that. Um, but this week, I'll just talk about how much this week, Eric and I got back to our to our projects, which we had sort of put on hold for December. And so we watched uh, The Exterminating Angel off of Ebert's um, great movies list. I had previously seen The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is by the same director, and had hated it very much. <laughs> Although, mm. long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not say that I loved The Exterminating Angel. I do think I liked it better than The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, although maybe I would feel differently about that one if I watched it now. I rewatched that one recently. It's fucking awful. Okay, so maybe not. But I did like The Exterminating Angel better than that one. I can't. I honestly can't remember if I've seen The Exterminating Angel. When we were going to watch it, I felt the same way. I was like, oh, fuck, and I had to look it up. Um, And then, off of the Film School Rejects list, we watched Melancholia, which I had not watched since theaters. So that was ten years ago. (laughs) And you know what? I think I liked it better this time. Uh, I I loved it, actually, a lot. Lars von Trier is full of all of the problems that Lars von Trier has. He is a (laughs) deeply fucking problematic figure. (laughs) On many levels. He is also one of those directors that really, like, personally spoke to me when I was in my early 20s. And I've sort of cooled on him quite a lot in my 30s <laughs> for many reasons. Uh, but Melancholia is, it is just fucking great. And it doesn't... Yeah, I need to rewatch that one, too. I haven't rewatched it. It doesn't feel... You know, and I haven't even watched his last one, and I, I kind of doubt I will. He seems to be sort of spinning off into maybe a predictable trajectory, but um, <laughs> it's not one that interests me that much. But just honestly, like, it's it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully filmed. It's so beautifully done. And it really just... Kirsten Dunst's performance is just fucking great. And is particularly the way in the first half she performs, uh, like her character is experiencing pretty severe depression and like what that looks like for her. And like, you can really like see her like going back and forth between sort of like collapsing and like putting on the face and laughing and smiling. And it just, it felt, it rang very true to me watching it. It's, 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 it's fucking great. It's yeah, it's amazing. It's on Hulu. Go watch it. I don't know. It's, I mean, it, it is a, it is a, it is something of a rough watch. Um, there is some, one of the things I appreciate about Lars von Cher is his humor, even when, and I feel like if you don't, like that either lands for you or it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. It's very, yeah. Unfortunately, um, this was Eric's first Lars von Cher movie, and I, I had no idea, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. how it would, how it land, but he really liked it. So, okay. um, so yeah, so it, it's good. It's worth, it's worth revisiting. Um, mm-hmm. and then we watched One Night in Miami. 
Oh, yeah, I haven't got to that one yet, but it is, it's high on my list. It was great. It was great. I, that's what I hear. Um, you know, speaking in terms of a play that's been cha- turned into a movie, and, and you can tell, I mean, it is it is definitely somewhat stagey, but I really think she did some she did some really great, great work. It, it, it's it's excellent. Great performances. Just really great. So, so yeah, um, other than that, I haven't... I, I, one of the uh, Disney Channel movies that Chris and I watched a week or two ago was The Phantom of the Megaplex, and I teared up when I saw a group of people <laughs> sitting in front of a movie screen. So, that's how I yeah. am. Uh, <laughs> doing great. <laughs> oh, Eric and I also rewatched Body Heat. Um, a week or two I've never seen that. Which is, it, it's, it's really good. I don't know. I like that's it. That's what I hear. And we also watched mm. Exit Through the Gift Shop, so I'm hoping that we don't get to that on our list for a while. Oh, man. But I, I will say that, that it held the fuck up, and it was still yeah. great. So I am okay. very excited to rewatch it when we do get there. Um, it's yeah, just I been, love that movie. It'll just be like a little annoying if it's been like two months since I watched it in 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, that's fair. But yeah, no, it's great. So, yeah, I think that's about what I've got, and we've been talking for so long. <laughs> yeah, uh, one one real quick note before we end here, because uh, I was just scrolling through Twitter just now while you were talking, because I don't listen to you, <laughs> and uh, discovered that the actress Gunnar Lindblom, who played Ingeri in The Virgin Spring, mm-hmm. apparently passed away this morning. Oh, what weird Which timing. Is, that is weird timing, yeah, but wow. I thought I, w- I thought I should should mention it, because she was great. It was great. And, so yeah, R.I.P. Yeah. Gonna Lindblom. Yeah, R.I.P. What a what wonderful work she did. Indeed. Okay, well, I think that's about what we got for now. Next time we will talk about Bruce Almighty. <laughs> yeah, weird tonal shift, but it'll be good. <laughs> All right, bye everyone. Bye.